Hey folks, thanks for checking out Missio Church in Manor, Iowa. You are listening to audio recorded at our Sunday morning service. If you'd like any more information on the gospel or would like to learn more about Missio Church, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Missio Mount Air. This is Genesis chapter 35, <clears throat> verses 1 through 15. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you, and purify yourselves, and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress, and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had, and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel, and he called its name Alon Bakuth. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padam Aaron, and blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you. And I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. And so Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. Grass withers, the flower fades, and the word of our God stands forever. So in order to get into uh, the passage this morning, just if you still have your Bible out, just look here briefly at Genesis 36. We're not going to spend time preaching through this genealogy, although it is an interesting genealogy. But just to jump into, just as a, as a way to get into this beginning part of 35, let's look at these descendants of Esau. This is, this is the great lineage, right? It says these are the generations of Esau, that is Edom, or these are the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites. There's a couple of sections there of the Toledot section. The, the, these are the generations of. And so our, our final chapter here this morning is, is really a final major moment focusing on the life of, of Jacob and his brother Esau. I mean, we've been spending weeks, right, looking at the life of Jacob. And here we are coming to sort of the end of the narrative of the life of Jacob. This, this focus will then, after Genesis 36, will shift 
to, to Jacob's children, to his, to his sons, and primarily Joseph. And we'll spend the next 12 chapters, essentially, uh, of the book of Genesis thinking about Joseph and the tribes of Israel coming from Jacob. And, and Jacob will show up at the end, the last two chapters, but really just kind of as the, the vehicle through which the blessing goes to his kids. And so this is kind of the final wrap-up of the life of Jacob. So this is a big deal, but we have a contrast then right after this wrap-up of the life of Jacob with kind of the wrap-up of the life of Esau. There's a stark contrast here. And so we didn't read all the way through Genesis 36, but I, I commend you to, to take the time and to read through it. Those names there, though we don't know them, one of the interesting things about Genesis 36, none of the names have really any good connotations. Only a couple of them have to do with God. Like they're names that have any sort of, of like thinking more highly, thinking high thoughts of God. They, they have names that mean things like mouse or like gold or like they have just all these weird kind of just common names and there's this real decline of the people of Esau. Esau's lineage is one that is filled with material blessing but the spiritual blessings of God are gone from him. He's despised his birthright, right? We know back from earlier in Genesis. He's despised the people of God and their promises. He's, he's marched away and this does work fine for him temporally like we see in Esau a lot of physical prosperity like he's doing well he's doing good like the land that he's got is a pretty big land and there are tons of people like they are growing they are having prosperity kings come from Esau as well like he's doing well in this world He's prospering by all measures. And in fact, you could say that in contrast to Jacob and what we're going to go in the coming weeks of the decline into the famine and how Jacob and his family, spoiler alert, read the rest of Genesis so you're kind of prepared for all of this. They have to escape to Egypt just to survive. Esau and his family, they don't seem to, they do just fine there and the Edomites remain in this land. So there's this big contrast between the life of Esau and the life of Jacob, the, the way that their lives wrap up. Our, our big idea for this morning is that the anchor for God's people is God and His promises alone. The anchor for God's people is God and His promises alone. And Esau lives in stark contrast to this. Because God, God Almighty is not his God, and because he has rejected God's promises, he has no true and lasting anchor. And that's why we go on to read uh, the Edomites. They're, they're famous throughout the rest of the Old Testament. Whole books of the Bible, uh, get, they're small, but books like Obadiah, a minor prophet, is all about like prophesying the doom of the Edomites, these ones, these descendants from Edom. Jeremiah in chapter 25, I think it is, has really not nice things to say about Edom. The future of, of Esau's people is not good. Though he's blessed in many material ways, there is no blessing that is, that is going to uh, stay the course with Esau. They are going well for them materially, but materially, but they are far from God. You know, honestly, if if you just want things to go well with you in this life, following Christ, following God is probably not for you. If that's what you really want, is just to have things temporally in this world to go well for you, following Christ probably is not the way that you should go. If that is what you are after, 
is just give me the best life I can get now, Christianity is not a faith that you're interested in. Because there are many avenues through which you can chase that and have better results than the call for the Christian, which is to take up your cross daily and follow him. And that if if the master suffered in this life, I don't know why the servants would think they'd be better than the master that persecutions and trials are coming on account of the word, right? We, the parable of the soils and that we talked about the Sermon on the Mount, the reality of the persecution that comes in this world from those who walk according to a different order, right? We're not citizens of this world. We are citizens of another kingdom. And so we ought not to plan upon that walk of following Christ to be a walk that's going to go along easily with the wickedness of this life. This is what it looks like to march away from God, Esau. He may succeed for a season, but ultimately you will reap the fruit of your rebellion. So that's 36, kind of a summary of it. But in contrast then to Esau and this lineage is Jacob and his people, right? And before we dig into the the text we read this morning, look briefly at the difficulties that come to, to Jacob's life here at the end. We we have recorded very quickly three deaths and a real just awful event um, at the end of Jacob's life here. As these are wrapped up, the first death we see, we did read this morning, is the death of Deborah. And this is the first time we get her name, I think. I couldn't find it anywhere else. This is the nurse that when, uh, when uh, Isaac goes to Laban and, and, and sees uh, Rebekah and, and takes her home, that when, this, when this marriage happens between Isaac and this the, the Servant is sent. But anyway, you get the idea. When, when Rebecca is brought to uh, Isaac, it is with, um, he sent this, this nurse, is sent with them. And so this woman, Deborah, has been there with Jacob all along in his life, right there beside his mother. It's obvious, I think, that, that Rebecca has died at this point. Like when he is sent off, uh, when, when Jacob runs away from Esau at, at Rebecca's request, She has now died, but there's this sorrow that comes in this woman who very much was tied up in personality with with his mother, like a very dear aunt or something along those lines who was very close with his mother, part of him growing up. We see this death come into his life, and we see the death of Isaac as well. We see that, uh, that Esau and Jacob come together, and they, they bury their father, Isaac. And so there's, there's all these deaths happening along the line. But now those are a couple of deaths that really aren't all that surprising. Rachel's dead. She's very old. Deborah is, or Rebecca, excuse me. Rebecca's dead. Deborah is very old. She dies. Isaac, his father, is very old, has died. But there's a couple other deaths that are more heartbreaking for Jacob here. Before we get to the heartbreaking death, though, there's this weird event of, we also see, of Israel while he's living in that land, verse 27, if you see that in Genesis there, Reuben, his oldest son, goes and lays with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. There's a lot going on there that isn't just simply like a moment of passion uh, for his father's concubine that Reuben tries to, goes and sleeps with, uh, has uh, sexual interaction with Bilhah, his father's concubine. That's actually an attempt to usurp Jacob's authority. He, he's, he wants to, he wants to become, he's, he's trying to say basically, Jacob, get out of the way. Your concubines are now mine. And so I am now basically the head of this household. There's this attempt to actually put Jacob 
in his place and, and to throw Jacob aside and for Reuben to become the, the primary man of the household, to, to take over. It is a real attempt to throw his father out of his position of authority. We see the same thing happen, right, with Absalom and David. Whenever David is kicked out of Jerusalem, he, he escapes because Absalom is rising in popularity among the people. What's the first thing Absalom does? He puts a tent on top of the palace and he goes in and he ha- sleeps with all of David's concubines as a, as a sign of, I am now the man of this household. I'm now the one in charge. And so Jacob here is betrayed by Reuben. And it isn't just a simple tryst that happens. There is an aggressive attack upon Jacob and his headship. It's an incredible betrayal that happens here. But furthermore, it happens likely because Reuben wants to make sure that now that Rachel has died, and that's kind of a big turning point here, his love, Rachel, has died. And so by sleeping with Rachel's concubine, He's, he's trying to make sure that the love of Jacob would now go to Leah and his mother, Reuben's mother, and not to this other side, not to, not to Rachel and her family. And so there's this, all of this incredible stuff going on, but we do have the death of Rachel. This is just on down from where we were at this morning in our reading, verses 16 through uh, 20. Rachel, you remember... Um, Evan preached this sermon that the, the war between uh, all of the women to try to have the most sons of Jacob. And Rachel is this, is this woman who, right, uh, when, when Jacob goes to Laban and he sees her, he immediately is in love. He, he wants to marry her, wants this woman to be his wife. He works 14 years to, to get Rachel for his wife. And there's the whole Leah debacle in there. But Rachel's barren, right? She has... She does not produce children. They're without child. And so they, these years go by of the barrenness of Rachel. But finally, we, we, Rachel has a child named Joseph. And Joseph means basically add to me. And her desire immediately upon having Joseph is, God, may you add to me another son. And then finally, that request is answered. And it's answered in the birth of Benjamin. But it results in her own death. So this woman who... Jacob was was his favorite, it's terrible, it's his favorite wife, which again, polygamy is recorded for us in Scripture. It isn't commended to us in Scripture. Like everywhere you see it and everywhere you see polygamy in the Bible, it's not prescribing what we should do. It's describing what happened, all right? And everywhere you see it, it's a mess. It doesn't produce good fruit, all right? So just to get that out, just a reminder of that whole event. But Rachel is his favorite wife. And then here she dies. Notice something that is incredible in this death, though. Verse 18, after her whole soul was departing, she was dying. She called the son, she called his name Ben-Oni, which means son of my sorrow or son of weeping, son of my sorrow. But his father called him Benjamin, which means son of my right hand. Or, so it would be the idea of like son of my strength. You know what's weird about that? How many other kids did Jacob name? Zero. 
he named Noah. Jacob's a, an incredibly passive. We were talking about this in the preaching cohort. Kind of our disappointment with Jacob is such a passive figure in his family. And he, these women, while they're fighting, Rachel and Leah and their concubines, while they're fighting for to have the most kids, they're doing all the naming. Jacob doesn't name a single kid. But when Rachel dies, he decides, I'm going, he's good. This is the only kid that Jacob names. And he wants to name him, though it's at the death of his beloved wife, he names him God is my strength. I think that's so weird. What's wrong with God of my sorrow? Wouldn't that make sense that this woman that he has loved and has been his favorite for so many years dies? Wouldn't this name, son of my sorrow, be make sense? And instead, instead he calls him son of my strength, son of my right hand. What is up with all of that? He, what? What could be producing, in the midst of all of this dying, in the midst of all of this difficulty, in the midst of, of all these things that are going wrong, something big enough in Jacob's life has happened that in the middle of all of these dark things, he's evidently anchored in something big enough that somehow the loss of this beloved wife actually causes him to confess the strength of his God and the tr his trust in his God. Something supremely profound happens that causes Jacob to be able to weather these trials and the future trials that are coming in the rest of the book of Genesis. And this is where I think the, the beginning of Genesis 35. So now we're to our text. Sorry, that was a long trek. But here we are at our text. This is where Genesis 35 is so huge because of what we see that God does for Jacob, for his people in this text. God is so good. I mean, Jim, we could have, I shouldn't say this because here I am preaching, but we could have stopped when Jim was giving the, 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 the sermon beforehand where it's like how faithful God is. When you read through the book of Genesis and you're reminded over and over and over again, isn't it amazing how faithful God is to his people? How good God is to his people that after the debacle of Genesis 34, somehow he does not abandon his people. God is so good. God is so faithful to his people. Jacob has returned here at the beginning of 35, right? And in chapter 34, he's returned to the promised land. He's returned to Shechem. He's returned to this land where, where God has promised to his people Great ruin, though, has come to his family as a result. And he says at the end of chapter 34, right, I've become a stench to everyone around me. This has not gone well. My return has totally blown up. It has not gone well for me. Remember, turn with me if you're in your Bibles to Genesis 28. Just go back to this last time as Gen Jacob's now coming back into the promised land. Let's look at what he says as he's leaving. As he's leaving, it's been about 30 years, maybe. I mean, commentators are kind of all over the board on this, but it's been a, a period of years that he's come back. But he's he, on his way out to see Laban, Laban. He has this moment here at Bethel. And this is the, Tyler Mass preached this text for us at the end of Genesis 28. And he has, sees this ladder, right? He's at this place. He leaves Beth Beersheba, went to Haran, verse 10. 
comes to a certain place, lays his head down upon one of the stones. He dreams, and there's a ladder set up on the earth. The top of it reached to the heaven, and angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. What incredible promises given to Jacob here. So he responds to this, right? Your offspring will be like the dust of the earth. Jacob then awakes from his sleep, verse 16, says, Surely the Lord was in this place. I did not know it. How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he put under his head, set it up for a pillar, poured oil on the top of it, and he called the place, the name of that place Bethel, which means house of God. But the name of the city was called Luz at first. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Jacob makes this promise. God, if you keep me in all of my traveling as I leave, and if you bless me and bring me back to this place, this will be a house for you. I will return to this place and build a house for you. And what do we see in Genesis 34? He comes back and he thinks, ah, Shechem's all right. I'll just stay in Shechem. And he falls short of coming back to this place that he has vowed to get to. And everything goes to, uh, goes to becomes a mess. Everything goes bad. (laughs) This is recorded. Everything goes bad. All right? It goes really bad. Right? Jacob forgets or fails to fulfill his vow. His family murders the men of a whole town. And you think, gosh, that's just, it's done. Start the whole thing over. Look how depraved and terrible these men are. But we read on in chapter 35 and we first hear a gracious call to return to him. I don't want to jump over this reality. We get so used to stories of God's gracious involvement. We start taking them for granted. We don't look at the initiation from God to bring his people back to himself and marvel. God has no obligation to do this. He's made promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He's made these promises, but they're, they're failing. They're, they're walking away. God is under no obligation except to his own character and his own desire that he makes the call to return to him. So often we think certain circumstances or certain behaviors persuade God one way or the other. You may think that way about yourself. You may feel that way about your situation, about where your life is and where you've gotten to. Maybe you feel like you've, you're too messed up or that you've gone too far or that God isn't interested in you. What I've done to this point is such a wreck There's nothing more for me. Look at the life of Jacob and his family and the mess that is being produced and hear God's gracious call to return to him. He says, go up to Bethel. There's a beautiful language there of, of, and not only is it geographically higher, but there's this understanding of like, we live our life looking so horizontally at all the things around us and all that's gone on in our past and where we are right now and all the better we think our future can be that the call of God is to look up to him, to raise our eyes and to hear the gracious call of God to return to him. No matter where you find yourself at this morning, I gotta be honest, the reason why you're here this morning is, is part of the reality of God is calling you to return to him. 
to, to lift your eyes and to look to him. It's not by any mistake that you were persuaded by whatever motivations to get up and come in this place this morning to be here and to hear this as part of God's gracious call to you to return to him. No matter where you've come from, no matter what's happened in the past years, days, hours, minutes, God's call is not based upon your deserving of it, but upon His gracious motivation and His gracious purpose to say, come to me. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The requirements there for coming to Jesus are weariness and being heavy laden to come to Him. God's gracious call to return to Him. What an incredible thing this is. Could I suggest to you that your longing for something more and, and all the longings that we try to fulfill in this world, that they may actually be God's gracious call for you to return to him? And like Samuel, who's hearing the voice of God calling to him over and over again, and he, he goes to old man Eli and just goes to, goes to the world, and I, I think I'm hearing, I, let me answer. We, we return again and again and again to the things of this world to try to fulfill our longings, when really it is the, the longing that God has put in your heart to return to him, to have gracious fellowship, right standing with him. So we see a gracious call to return to, to God. But we also see something important in Jacob's response to this call to return. We see that a return to Christ is a turning away from all else. A return to Christ is a turning away from all else. God will not share his glory with another. To turn to him is to turn away from all other would-be gods. Jacob gathers up his family. He says, put away the foreign gods that are among you. These might be the gods that Rachel stole. You know, she, when, they, when they escape the house, she gathers these idols and then she sits on them and says, it's my time of the month, you can't, I can't get up. And then she hides these idols, household gods, from her father. It could be these foreign gods. It could be foreign gods they've just picked up from the culture around them as they've lived near Shechem and, and kind of and brought all their idols into them. And as they've actually gone and ransacked the city, maybe they've brought all the idols from their culture around them. And they have all these idols, all these false idols. Jacob gathers them up and he's the earrings thing is not 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 that the earrings are bad but is that there's you know remember the golden calf that these earrings are sometimes superstitious talismans almost or something so they're taking these these superstitious uh lucky whatever uh and and they're getting rid of all of these things they're abandoning all securities all gods for the one true god they take these things they purify themselves they change their garments and they bury their idols the New Testament often speaks of coming to Christ in this way, as turning from idols. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9 through 10, Paul, writing to the church at Thessalonica, says that for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, the church at Thessalonica, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. The way that he categorizes the, the salvation of the Christians in Thessalonica is that they turned from, from idols to the true and living God. And there's a turning away from idols and to God. 1 John 5, 21, I'm always fascinated by this passage. John, in writing of love for neighbor and love for God and all of these things, he, he wraps up the whole book of 1 John. And by the last verse in chapter 5, he says, Little children, 
Keep yourselves from idols. Keep yourselves from idols. And while the idols that Jacob buried were physical objects of worship, idols come in many forms. Tim Keller, uh, in, in all of his writings, I mean, they found this one thing on idolatry that he said that I thought was good. Tim Keller says that an idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give, you seek to give you what only God can give. Anything that is so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. Those things that compete for our loyalty, for our affections, for our attention, those things besides God that truly control our moods, those things are idols. They're competing with God. What are the affirmations that either make your day great or terrible? What circumstance going right makes everything wonderful? And what circumstance then going wrong makes everything terrible? That's an idol of the heart. We have idols of people. We have idols of our own image, wanting people to think well of us. And here's how it works. If you have a, a, an idol of, of self-image, you, you begin to place the goodness or badness of your day upon other people's thoughts of you. <laughs> Sometimes this gets so dominant in your life that the thought that, that people have about you doesn't even have to be confirmed by them if you think they think this about you. It can put your day in a bad spot because you're bowing down to others' opinions of you as opposed to what, what Christ thinks of you. You have an idol of others' opinions and they begin to rule you. They begin to ruin you. They begin to give you success. If people compliment you and think well of you, then your day is high, but they think poorly of you, then your day is low. That is, a, it is an evidence of an idol. It's revealing an idol of the affirmation of people. You care more for what others think of you than what God thinks of you. That needs to be buried. Confessed as sin and abandoned with the help of the Holy Spirit. New City Catechism says it like this. What is idolatry? Idolatry is trusting in created things rather than the creator for our hope and happiness, significance, and security. We do this with tons of things. John Calvin, I think, was right when he says that the heart is an idol factory. Like in our natural state, we just crank them out. Everywhere we look, we're looking for something else to give me hope, to give me happiness, to give me significance and security. And we just crank them out without even thinking about it. New idols to bow down to, to, to put our hope in, to rely upon it. Maybe it's this relationship. Maybe it's this job. Maybe it's, it's this, uh, uh, this uh, status within my community. Maybe it's whatever. All these idols, we do this with tons of things. Material possessions, physical appearance, either our beauty or our strength. You know, it's like junior high and bad hair days. Like, that could ruin everything, right? <laughs> because you have an idol of appearance. Like, and like honestly, an, an out-of-place hair, which mine, they're always out of place. They, but, like, that can become this real idol of, of appearance where we want to be known as intelligent or maybe really funny or successful. Maybe we, while we're still young, because when you get older, this has to die, we're still young, we place our identity on our athletic abilities, I could be good at something and impress those around me. Those things aren't necessarily bad things, but when they become ultimate things, they turn into God things, that become, they become idols. And they need to be buried. Anything more important to you than God is an idol, which means that burying them will sting. I just want to mention this part. I mean, 
don't let the sting of burying an idol, turn, of turning from false gods to the one true God, keep you from God. Turning from them will sting in the moment, but those idols will fail you ultimately. But I don't want to sell you a false bill of goods and act like killing idols is no big thing. Because it is. Because there's a part of your heart that is committed to these things, that does love these things, that does still hope they'll give you what you want. And so killing idols will hurt. It's a real thing. Putting, burying them in the ground is a real thing. Turning to Jesus and turning from idols will sometimes feel like death in the moment. I've got to give this thing up. I've got to stop bowing down to this thing to give me my hope, my happiness, my significance, and my security. It'll feel like a death. But, in, but it pales in comparison to the life that you are receiving and putting your hope and happiness, your significance and security in someone who can actually deliver on his promises. I'll say this radical statement that actually if you've never had anything you've had to painfully die to, you may not even really be a Christian. If there's nothing in your life that you've ever had to put to death that competes with God, you ought to seriously think, am I really trusting Christ alone? Or do I, have I added Christianity to my pursuits of all kinds of other things? The call to follow God is to turn from all else and to cling to Him alone. Will you do this today? Do you sense God working in your heart, revealing idols of the heart that you might have, of the idols that you might have? Will you bury them today? And I wish I could say this is a one-time event. Like, hey, I buried, I buried my idols 25 years ago. I'm good. Uh, unfortunately, that's not the way the, the, the wicked, the, the, the human heart works. Even the regenerate heart, the old man still is at war within us, resurrecting idols over and over again, needing to put them to death over and over again. It's why the Christian life is one of repentance. Will you turn from idols and trust the living God today? I plead with you, bury your idols. Recognize them. The things that you're looking to that aren't God for your hope and your happiness, your significance and security, kill them, bury them. Why? They will fail you in the end. They will let you down. They will let you down. There is only one who can truly deliver to give you what you most desire, and that's re restored relationship with your creator. So lastly, we do just see the reminder of his promise. Jacob has the recapitulation, the restatement of this promise. This is what I'm going to do for you, Jacob. So he's He's heard the call, he's turned from all else, and then he hears this promise. Christians live, we as fallen and messed up people, sadly sinning to varying degrees of severity, will fall short of our promises to God. And so we must live not resting upon our promises to him, but his promises to us. Jacob renews this altar at Bethel, and he calls it El Bethel, the God of the house of God. He needs to be told again he is Israel, not Jacob. He needs reminding it is God who is El Shaddai. He is God Almighty. Jacob's not God Almighty. He's not Jacob Almighty. He's weak and, and very uh, pathetic at times. He needs to reminded that God is El Shaddai. He is the all-powerful, almighty God. So what Jacob hears is what God is going to do, big picture, save his people, he hears who he is in the midst of it. Israel, one who wrestles with God. He hears who God is to perform it, the Almighty God. All this we hear in the gospel. God is redeeming all things through the work of Christ. 
He has a purpose. He has a big picture. It is to redeem a people, to make them one with himself, so that when he returns and makes all things new, we might dwell with him in the fullness of his joy on a renewed heavens and a new earth forever. He has a big purpose. The gospel tells us who we are in the midst of it, who we can become in the midst of it, adopted children, forgiven of our sins and reconciled to him. And we hear through the resurrection of Christ and his ascension to the right hand of the Father, how powerful he is to do it. Jacob can rest his hopes, not in his own power, shown to be incredibly fickle and weak, but in his all-powerful God. In the same way, the people of God can rest our hopes in his power to do all that he has promised for his own glory and for our ultimate good. The anchor for God's people are God and his promises and those promises empower us to flee idols and to trust in him alone. Let's pray. Father, we are in this place this morning. I pray that we're in this place this morning, not as a simple effort to just check off of a long to-do list of things we want to do, but as a, as a sincere effort to turn aside from all things that compete with you. Everything that competes with you loses. <laughs> and I pray that in this place this morning as, you, as we sing this closing song and as we prayerfully sing it and, and turn our eyes towards you, God, that you would open our eyes to the, the idols of our heart that, that compete with you that need to lose. That we might hear your gracious call to look to you, to turn to you, to trust you. We might hear your promises to accomplish your purpose and your power to perform all that you promise for your people. God, would you strengthen hearts in this place to turn from sin and self and idols and to kill them and to flee from them and to turn and to trust in you alone. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.